We're back in Beirut for episode 235, and we're joined by Diana Mallid. Diana is a former future TV news reporter, a documentary producer and director, and a co-founder of Daraj Media. Rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, and kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Donate as much as you'd like. And find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. I'm Ronnie Shatah, and it feels good to be home. One of the reasons I was looking forward to coming back was to do episodes in person. And in person, I assumed would sort of be more like pre-COVID. I would actually get to see somebody, sit down with them. And the way I used to do this all the time, COVID cases going up, lockdown began, I guess, two days ago. And now I'm having a conversation with Diana Mallid on Zoom. <laughs> and we are not that far away from... Yeah, I, for me, in a very, very personal way, I'm, I'm honored that I got to meet you. Was it Wednesday? I think, or Tuesday. Yeah, it was Wednesday. So one day before the lockdown began, and I got to meet you, which to me was very important. I wanted to actually have a physical moment with you before we sort of got stuck in this scenario. And you were very gracious with your time. And I, I believe it's the first time we actually met face to face. And you showed me your world. And I really enjoyed it. I didn't really get the chance to tell you thank you properly. It was the first time I saw, in a way, not just Daraj, but it's the first time I sort of walked into Antwerp and walked into the other building and got to see things that I'd never seen before, including the Ta'yadin Salah building from the roof. It was a lot of fun for me and uh, something that I thought was quite appropriate. And I mentioned this in, in person. Um, your view from your balcony is the other side of Spears and just across the street is future TV. So I thought that was quite important to note as well. And it was quite fitting, perhaps, that you're still around. I want to get into a lot of things that, that dance around this issue, and there, there's much more. Uh, but first of all, I, I also was looking forward to 2021 being a break from 2020. And I mean, it's like DC and Trump and all these things. It seems like this is just an extension to 2020. And I'm curious, Trump is now, I, I guess, permanently suspended from Twitter, or I, I believe it's a permanent ban on, on Twitter, as long as he's president. Uh, Facebook, I think, did the same thing. It's either temporary or there's an indefinite ban while he's still president. And to me, Trump is this odd, odd blend of entertainment and social media and power. And in my opinion, although I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, it's a form of abuse in terms of what social media and what alternative media, and what this sort of democratic universe where individuals can speak their mind, it seems to be more on the toxic side. And now he's sort of facing a suspension. Let's start there. Before we jump into the Lebanese story and, and your career, I'm curious your, from your side, somebody who's maybe tuned in to social media, digital media, alternative media, is that a correct assumption to portray Trump or, or is this really just a case of censorship that principles matter more here and that he should not be banned? First of all, thank you for having me. I'm really, really happy to be with you. Uh, second, uh, starting with Trump is really important because I do personally have mixed feelings towards what happened with Trump. Mm. Uh, yes, Trump is very dangerous. He has incited hate, uh, fake news, and all sorts of bad things on Twitter or on his social media pages. Uh, personally, I feel, well, yes, there has to be a limit, especially for those who are in power. But at the same time, I think banning him gave him the opportunity to victimize himself. Now, mm -hmm. Trump, among his supporters, he is being targeted, and that can lead to more and more people believing in the conspiracy theory and trying to uh, create 
a parallel world where we can see other Trumps. It's not only Trump. So frankly, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think Trump, Trump should, and Trump alikes, because we have many Trumps around the world, right. should be limited uh, when it comes to hate speech, when it comes to fake news. But at the same time, banning them totally, uh, depriving them from a space will not end the phenomenon. They mm. will work on having a parallel world and parallel reality. We all were surprised when the Americans elected Trump. Let's not forget <laughs> that 70 million Americans have voted for Trump even this time. Mm -hmm. So Trump is there. Trumpism is there. It's not only in America. It's all over, all over the world. Right. So I do have, I think it's, it's a very sensitive topic. I think banning Trump and alikes totally is a dangerous thing. Maybe uh, erasing some of his tweets, uh, temporary suspension. I agree that there should be actions towards people who are in power. More, of course, not against regular people. I'm talking those who are like, like Trump representing, he is the leader of the world, whether we like it or not. So yes, he has to, to understand that there are consequences to what he does, but I think banning him totally is, 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 is not going to solve the problem it might incite another problems ahead. Yes, you know, I, there mm -hmm. actions, but I'm not comfortable personally with banning him totally. You know, I, I like that sort of, you're, you're able to delicately uh, condone his messaging and also apply that principle, which is this may actually be a form of censorship. And I like that you're hinting at a slippery slopes scenario that he's not the only person that does this, although, although he's maybe the most well-known, at least when it comes to Twitter, and that it doesn't stop these thoughts or, or these, um, these messages will be shared in, in other outlets. And from the States, I kind of got to know these Twitter alternatives that are more right wing and I forget their names now, Absolutely. but there's, yeah. And that's sort of the messaging ends up in these corners, which may be where you don't want yeah, them I, to I, sort of. I yeah. learned today that even Steve Bannon uh, YouTube uh, channel and his uh, radio station has been banned, but this will not stop having right-wing radical movements. Mm -hmm, they will mm -hmm. know technology. You will always have a way out. So it's not about banning those right. thoughts. Right. It's really solving not to bring again these ideas, how we solve the right wing, the radical uh, uh, principles. This is the issue. It's not only just to, uh, to hide them from the surface, banning them from social media. Mm -hmm. We have a genuine problem with the mentality, with the principles. So Twitter is a tool. If you stop them from one tool, they will find another uh, uh, medium to come up. So I yeah. think it's really dangerous as much as we hate them. I am. I personally cried, literally cried, when Trump won in 2016 <laughs> because I, I couldn't believe that. He, really, I cried. But to, and I, as much as I am happy that he is removed, and maybe uh, the Trump page would be now we will turn the Trump page. Although I'm not sure quite enough. Uh, still, I have so many uh, questions regarding the banning thing. This ties up many things. It ties up where we are in terms of alternative media. Uh, the, the difficulties in this new terrain, which is not that new anymore, but fairly new given that, at least in your own career, uh, you've sort of, you, you swam across many different sort of, you've been in the media industry for almost three decades. I was a very big fan of Samir Asir years ago. And yes. 2005, and when he was assassinated, um, I kind of was yearning to learn more about him. And there's no social media back then. Samir Asir didn't have a Twitter handle or Facebook or Instagram page. So you had to really learn about what he, what he said and what, he, what his messaging was. And you had to rely on mostly traditional media outlets. Or occasionally you'd find these sort of grainy sort of documentaries or maybe he spoke in different outlets. Over time, that got easier. All of that is online now. But I came across your name several times. And I, I learned about you through that sort of that world. And then, of course, the future TV career, which was very long. Is, the, is there maybe a downside to the way traditional media evolved that the alternative media was just a natural byproduct? So in other words, 
your career today is not on a Lebanese TV station. You're running Dedej, Dedej Media, and we're going to dedicate time to that. But is Dedej Media a byproduct of failure within traditional media? And there, in that mix, you can get somebody like Trump who's able to say, you know what? Screw the traditional media. He even insults them. He wages war against them. He calls them fake news. And he's his own powerhouse. And I know, I know, Dedej and Trump, there's very little in common, but they're using the same space. There's this universe. There's the internet. And, and both operate there. I operate there too. Everybody that is in that world has to use sort of the internet in different ways. Nobody's using traditional media to message. And if it's not a failure, is there a better word to describe why we have so many alternatives today to what used to be the only way to learn what was happening. And it's, it's not that long ago. We cannot compare the balance of power between a small independent platform with, with mainstream media or those who are in power. Mm. Of course, mm. uh, between, the comparison between me personally or Daraj or somebody who has 80 or 100 million followers is, is not uh, sure. equal. Yeah. At the same time, to me, uh, the need for alternative voices, whether independent platforms or even individuals trying to play the, uh, to use the void that mainstream media have left is simply because of the polarized world that the media, the mainstream media is, is playing. I'll give you a very mm. quick example. A few days ago, we had uh, the summit that took place in Riyadh yes. uh, between the Gulf states. It's Finally, uh, the two princes, Mohammed bin Salman and Tamim, uh, uh, Prince of Qatar, have decided to, uh, to meet and solve their issues between Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Look at the mainstream media, look at Al Arabiya and Al Jazeera, the language they covered the summit with and the language they used three years, during the past three years. It's really, this is that, this is very simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. because Opposites. you have a media that's 100% following those who finance it. It's, mm -hmm. it's about money. Who owns the media in the Arab world? Mm -hmm. Who runs mm -hmm. the editorial offices of this media? Definitely, I'm not saying uh, the people who are working on uh, in these websites or these media outlets are 100% follow the editorial uh, line, but the main newsroom, the, the editorial decision is really cannot escape this kind of polarization. And we see it in so many issues. The, here comes the alternative voices and the alternative media, because people mm. don't want to see any uh, event just from the perspective of those who are, are uh, in power. Uh, I don't want to judge the crisis in the Gulf or the relation with Iran or what's happening in Syria or what's happening in Egypt, just from the point of view of those who own the media. Mm. And here comes uh, uh, the powers. So we want a third story. That's why in Daraj we chose the slogan of the third story. It's not just the polarized parties, right or uh, left. It's we want to know a more in-depth on a different perspective of what's happening. It's another way to say the, the real story rather than saying uh, X or Y story, which, uh, which is the case among uh, the mainstream media. Here, here is in particular the failure of the mainstream media. The mainstream media, it's much more uh, influential, mm. but at the same time, when it comes to these issues, it fails a lot. When it comes to issues of democracy, prisons, women's rights, all the vital issues, you will find a failure. I, uh, the polarization, I look back a bit and I don't remember media being that polarized. Even in the more conservative outlets that were towing the line, I, I don't remember this sort of sort of very di bleak dichotomy of it's either black or white or it's left-wing, right-wing, or it's Qatar-sponsored, Saudi-sponsored. Mm, we're mm, talking, mm. we are, we live, we're celebrating 10 years of Arab Spring mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. year. Yeah. So things before 2011 were different. Mm. It was not brighter, it was contained. I worked in the media in the 90s, okay? We had 
also editorial uh, limitations at that time. Mm-hmm. I decided to choose, let, I will work on the issues that I can cover. I tried to avoid local politics because I knew then that I will not be able to cover it freely. I went to the topics where I can work properly. I'm very proud of every story I worked on because I chose the topics that no editorial uh, uh, limitations will be, will be, would be put upon me. In 2011, people like me, I personally felt no more compromises. I mean, with, with the counter-revolutions, with people being massacred in the streets, mm-hmm. in prisons, across the country, wars, refugees, all these huge stories and uh, um, problems, you cannot be a neutral toward it and use uh, uh, just very careful words. After 2011, I thought it's about time to have louder voices. Mm-hmm. And here comes whether are we journalists or activists or, or somewhere in between. It's where we live. This region is, is, we have so many problems in this region. So I couldn't uh, be where I was into, before 2011. And I, since then, I started thinking yeah. of having uh, my own space, a different platform, till it materialized after 2015. You know, I like that there's, it's almost lining up perfectly. And 2011, the Arab Spring, and it's also a few more years until Future TV more or less shuts down. And then yes. not, not that much later, Daraj is sort of, in a way, pioneering in, in the Lebanese story, uh, digital media and alternative media. I'm going to get into that. But I'm curious, just going back a bit in time to the early 1990s. I hope I got this right. You studied journalism. You, 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 you wanted to be a journalist before becoming a journalist. I'm curious, how were you so determined at such a young age to end up in this field? Is there something that goes back even further? And, you know, three decades later, or, you know, give or take a few years, you're still a journalist. So it's almost like in your blood. What, what, what brought you to this uh, this this world of storytelling and, and news and, and sort of this career? I have to say that it was not that well calculated that I, I became a journalist. Mm. Uh, I, I was born and lived in Saudi Arabia. My father used to work there. We came mm. to Lebanon mm. in 1986. So I finished all my school years at Jeddah in Saudi Arabia and then moved back to Lebanon. It was war. It was the last years of civil war and right. it was vicious, very vicious. Yeah. So frankly, at that time, it was me experiencing my country for the first time, not Mm, knowing where mm. to go, exploring, even walking in the streets in Beirut during war. So I have to say, I didn't have much choices at that time. I enrolled in Lebanese University Faculty of Journalism, but I have to be frank, the worst years of my life were the years (laughs) of those years. (laughs) Because again, we're talking about Beirut divided, Lebanese yeah. University having two faculties. The university have closed several times due to uh, battles and war. Mm. And also the university was controlled by militias and by some radical groups at that time. Right. Uh, the ones that control the country nowadays. So to me, this is not what I envisioned for myself for university years. Anyway, I graduated from journalism. I have to say that with time, I started... Uh, understanding and evaluating uh, what is journalism and what is it to tell a story Mm. and uncover stories of people and going to the real stories and not uh, just focused on covering uh, politics and news of the presidents and officials. The first years of working as a journalist were mainly about what we want to cover, what was the story? You have to go to a minister or a deputy or a leader to yeah. have a story, which is, this is not journalism. This is a tiny issue of the story. This is mm. not the whole mm. story. Right. So I learned journalism by practice. I used to work with so many foreign journalists who used to come to Beirut after the end of civil war. Um, with them, frankly, I started exploring what is a camera, how to film. With them, I went to Tripoli, filming uh, uh, children in the streets, working in the garages, uh, working on domestic workers, and so many other social issues. Mm. This experience led me to, made me understand more the importance of videos and camera and how to develop a story 
with with uh, with picture. So this is how I started loving my profession. But I, so this, in a way, you were meant to become a, a digital sort of media personality before the digital age really took off, because you're learn you're teaching yourself in a way. Nobody's sort of pushing you in this direction, and you're. I'm a self-taught person. You're so, yeah, this is hands-on. And, but, you know, those years are, are interesting because you return, and, and you said it, it's the most vicious years of the Civil War, Beirut's anarchy. My, my family, we used to visit Lebanon. We couldn't even get, get to Beirut. We used to fly to Damascus, take a taxi to Tripoli, across Syria, because you couldn't get from Beirut to Tripoli. And, and the city itself was so, well, was violent. And you saw it up front. You saw it with your own eyes. Does that feed into why you wanted to tackle these social issues early on? Was it things that you saw in Beirut that coming from the relative calm of Saudi Arabia and then, you know, you're, you're in Lebanon, not in the best years of Lebanese history. And the, the early 1990s, from my memory, I mean, the civil war ended, but Beirut was still in, in deep pain. I mean, the civil war was still felt. And does that feed into it? That Why you didn't want to go, let's say, to just traditional news reporting or something that's more common. Yeah. yeah. During these years, I was more on the receptive side. I was mm. absorbing more than reacting. I started reacting when I was in my late twenties. Uh, mm. So uh, coming back to Lebanon, first of all, I was very conservative when I came uh, back to Beirut. I was more of the religious side, uh, a bit conservative, traditionally, socially. Then I started after graduation from the university, after working, I started doing my own revolution, personally. It's <laughs> who I am, what I want as a woman, regarding freedom, regarding my relation with other Lebanese from mm. different religions and sects. So it started from, from my personal revolution against my uh, uh, traditional ideas that I was raised on. Later on, it started to be reflected in my work. So all, all the, what I absorbed in my childhood and my uh, teenage and back in Lebanon has been reflected in my work. It is related to war. It's related to traditions. It's related to religion. It's related to how I was raised and what's around me. Uh, I can talk a lot about that. I don't, want, I don't know if I want to. Well, but, I'm, I'm, but so, so it's really your own, these are all on your terms. You, you enter this world and you want to touch the, touch on the issues that are in a way breaking taboos to, to a certain yeah. degree. And so that's, that's yes. deliberate in your career. You didn't sort of stumble into that. You, you wanted to, to go down that road, even if yes, the pressure was elsewhere. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was you, my choice. You know, I remember for women issues. It was my choice to go and look for domestic workers in the early nineties when yes. they at that time, very, very few journalists would they would care and cover these stories and so many other issues. Besides political, I, I was one of the first reporters to go to Afghanistan during Taliban and cover women issues there. I covered the story about Jews in Yemen, yes. uh, talking yeah. about minorities in the region. So yes, I was I was concerned about these issues. I, I hope I remember this right. I, I had to look it up. And yeah. the name was not uh, maybe Belain al Mujarrad Mujarrada. Thank Blain you. Mujarrada. Yes. So this my memory is my memory is really bad. But I I remember watching this on I think it was Future TV. It was on Future yeah. itself. Yeah. And these were these were I mean now you just anyone can have a YouTube station and throw out their whatever their iPhone footage and call it a documentary. I, I mean yeah, there's so many quote documentaries today and i'm going to throw myself in the mix here a lot of amateurs who are pretending that they know how to do things this is real stuff and you know i i remember that being one of the few sort of uh well series if you will that touches on the more sort of sensitive subjects and today it's fashionable everybody has a story every outlet wants to talk about these social Absolutely. issues 25 years ago 20 years ago in lebanon you couldn't do that you had to push. And can you take me back to those years when, when you're in future TV? And I hope, I hope I got this right. You were there from the beginning. You were there. As yes, I, started, I joined future TV even before there was a news bulletin on, on, on the screen. Right. It was so, in 93. Okay. So from 93 to 99 in those years in future, uh, 
did it take a lot of courage on your side or, or let's say pushback or pressure to get something like that on TV? I have to say, I, I, my best years, my best career years and worst of them were both in future TV. <laughs> okay. <In> the 90s. <laughs> That's fair. In the 90s, that was the peak of the success of the channel itself yep. and me yep. personally. Mm. Well, I, have, I had to prove myself, definitely. Uh, at that time, the channel was uh, at its peak. Uh, yeah. At that time, we're talking about satellite channels. The future was really widespread. And uh, it was a success period for future television at that time. I, had, I covered two wars before I started doing my documentary series, mm. which mm. was 93 and 96, uh, covering Israeli massacres in Lebanon. Uh, that gave me a leverage uh, along I with see. other coverages that I participated in. I was a field reporter. I felt that this is journalism. I was mm. not, mm. Um, I tried as much as I can to escape sitting in the office or covering uh, press conferences and uh, those issues. Yeah. I focused more on the social, human, uh, other parts that many journalists would try to, would, would try to avoid. So with time, with years, I managed to prove myself and the uh, managers of Future Television at that time, several ones, uh, gave me, uh, trusted me. And when I proposed that I wanna do uh, a documentary series, um, first of all, they were a bit hesitant, but then they accepted. And the first uh, experience mm. was in Iraq during Saddam Hussein. Um, I see. That was so, in 99. So you had already established your credentials in a way in the station that they were willing yeah, to I go mean, that. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The documentary started in 98. Mm, I started mm. with Future in 93. So I had like seven, seven years, six to seven years to yeah. prove that I am, I am worthy of it. Right. So and I have to say that I had a, a good relation, a friendly relation with several uh, uh, managers and uh, editors at Future TV from top management to medium management. So um, at that time, it was, we can discuss and talk and it has ups and downs, you know, as any professional relation, but uh, I, I managed to do it. And that was between 98 and 2004. Right. It, and you know, it lasted 2004. Before we did this and back going back to Antwerp and, and the first, when I met you several days ago, you pointed at something that I thought was, it, it, it was worth noting. And I'll, I'll repeat it here. Uh, we were mentioning the, maybe the, the beginning of the end to traditional media's influence across the board. And we mentioned future TV just in terms of years. And it, it was a, a nice sort of reminder that it, it, the, the diminishing influence began prior to Rafiq Hariri's assassination. And I, I hope, I remember we said 2004 was the beginning. Yeah, in 2004, it was still not related directly to the mm. internet and mm. social media, as much as to the political situation in Lebanon to, and how much it was connected with, uh, with funding and uh, financial issues. I After see. 2010, then we can start talking about social, social media and the internet uh, world. Before so you, that, even YouTube and the sort of the beginning of Facebook, that didn't really have any direct impact on, 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 on at least that station in particular. It that, started. It started. Okay. But the yeah. real, real hit was not because of that. Right. Okay? Right. Yeah. But after 2010, it was inevitable mm -hmm. that everybody should really find a space on the new uh, media, which is online, social media, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, before 2010, everybody was trying to find their way, you know, uh, right. and yeah. it was still everybody was relying on uh, uh, advertisement. It was the traditional approach to how you make a television and how you get uh, money of it. So it was a different uh, dynamics uh, at that time. You know, I'm going to mention something that it, it I'm, because I'm 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 naive, and I I know nothing. Not there's naive, there's yeah. a there's a name that I I associated with independent media and traditional media. Uh, you might know his name, Hazm Al Amin. You might you may have heard of him. And I had no clue, no clue. I'm like I, I should these things you should know, right? Especially when Lebanon yeah. is small. There is a 99% chance it's going to be a couple. <laughs> but I. I just thought these are, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. I've seen the name. Yeah. 
they probably work together. <laughs> so I actually... Actually, that's in future television, by the way. <laughs> oh, that was in future. You guys met in future. Yes, but we, we did not uh, get uh, uh, engaged in future. Hazen used to work with future. This is how we met. We, okay. first of all, we did not talk to each other. I mean, uh, wow. it took us a while to become friends. Uh, and then he left Future to work with Al Hayat in 1997. Right, right. Uh, and later on, after in 2003, we got married. But I mean, yes, we knew each other as journalists. But you so, knew each other in, 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 in the traditional media circles. And yes. You, yeah. I find yes. it very interesting that, and uh, the third name was Ali Ibrahim. I hope the last yes. name is correct. Yeah. So these are, yes. and she was in Arabia. And, uh, she, was in Arab, before Arabia, she was in Washington Post. Uh, of course, she, yes, Washington Post as well. And then right. uh, last thing, she was in Arabia, yes. And she was the managing editor, I remember, in Daily Star at some point. Or she, she yes. her name was, yeah. So, but these are all... 10 years in Daily Star, yes. 10 years. Okay, so that's all, that's all the traditional outlets I know when it comes to, or maybe not traditional is the right word. Those are the, those are the big names. And you don't, I don't think of those big names when I think of alternative media. Yet these are three individuals, you're, you're one of them, who decide to pioneer and sort of go a different road. And it works. It, it works. It succeeds. Now, I'm curious from your side, was this, was this a calculated move that you saw that now, now is the time to structure this and turn something, make something like Daraj? One of the one of the main names when it comes to news, and and that it's not a Lebanese outlet, it's it's Middle East, North Africa. I actually went down the list of journalists associated with Daraj, and I mean Lebanon is just one sort of section, but there's it's all over. So is is there a is it built in that you want to be regional? You want to be like one of these major stations, except you have full control. And there's no sort of influence that, in, in other words, going back to Doha, uh, um, the summit between Qatar and Saudi Arabia and these sort of, you know, stations having different sides, that you can be the one that says, well, there's a story we'll cover it on our terms and nobody's pushing us in any direction. First of all, yes, we have to benefit from the experience we gathered in the past two to three decades. So, mm -hmm. again, I will go to, the, to 2011 and post Arab revolutions mm. era, uh, where we started witnessing how the media landscape is, is, is moving. And with the same media outlets that we worked in before 2011, we all could sense the level of censorship and pressure that has been exercised on journalists on all media outlets. Because after the Arab Spring, you can see the amount of polarization politically, religiously, and that inflected on, on, on mainstream media. Mm. So we started observing and trying to figure out other uh, solutions. And part of the problem uh, that ha happened after 2011 is, uh, is funding, because political influence affected funding. If you remember, many media outlets have either failed or, or shut down or had to release so many journalists. Right. So it's, it's not separable. You, you cannot separate editorial independence from funding. So we, we, we decided, okay, we have to find a way out. Uh, we, we, we are journalists and we want to remain so, and we feel that this is something that we want to work on. We love our, our profession. Right. So we started exploring and the idea of, and you know, the three of us, we are uh, mid-age uh, uh, journalists, we're not young. Yeah. And many would think that, uh, new platforms uh, should be entrepreneurs within 20s. It, it, yeah, or absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that was a challenge. And many were skeptical towards us because, okay, you belong to traditional media and now you're coming to, come to, uh, to work on an independent platform. And yeah, we face so many skepticism about how serious we are and whether we are going to succeed or not. And we accepted this challenge. So we decided we want to be independent. We don't want to fall in the trap that we have suffered from in the past two decades. And we all can tell stories about how the editorial uh, limitations affected our, uh, our profession. Anyway, we decided it's, it's a momentum. We have mm. a boost in technology. Technology has become 
I wouldn't say cheap, but accessible. Now you can have uh, um, access to social media, to a platform, uh, developer. It's not costly as much as you create the television. I you know, mean, even, I know the budget of televisions is, is millions, but we're talking about small budgets where you can create a presence on, on, on the alternative media. It's, you cannot compare the, the scale of money that you will spend on both uh, schemes. Hmm. I like the emphasis on cost effective and that you can afford to, uh, uh, many people can test this terrain. And is that, is that something that is fundamental? That if something like Deraj costs more, it wouldn't be able to work, that it has Absolutely. to, mm, yeah. So Sorry, I, keep on. No, no, so I, I like that. So there's, is that simply because technology like this has just reached the point that all you really need is a phone and you can film? I mean, is it is it there that everyone is carrying alternative media cameras with them all the time? That's literally anyone can try this out. The answer is yes. I mean, mm -hmm. the cost to us has to be very, very minimal to mm -hmm. be able to mm -hmm. succeed. The whole budget, the monthly budget of Daraj, I know for, for a fact, is equivalent to either one or maybe two seniors in any other regular television in, in the Arab world. Oh, wow. So that much, we're not talking about a huge budget, budgets. We're really talking about something manageable that can mm -hmm. survive and can really last. We don't want to build a huge institution that can fail in one month and spend the whole budget, and then we find ourselves without an income. Also, part of our mission is, we, we, we said from the first day, and we say it on, on, on the website, where we get our money. Funding from independent institutions. We don't take money from governments or right. yeah. any political party. Yeah. This is a, a strategic decision. Mm -hmm. We take money from institutions where we say who they are. And these, these institutions, mainly Europeans, they also put their budgets online. So you can easily go and check how much money they are paying to us. Right. We want to be transparent when it comes to funding. But this is, to us, a transitional period. We want to be able to be profitable and turn, or at least to make money so we can survive and maintain our editorial independence because money is related to editorial uh, uh, independence, whether we like it or not. I hope I'm not overstepping here, but if, and I saw that on the website too, and I thought that was an interesting, that it's, that it's emphasized that you can see where the money is coming from. It's fully transparent. And at the same time, this is intended to be a for-profit or profitable enterprise. Is that simply requiring some form of subscription or sponsorship where you're relying on the audience less, less than anyone else. Cause I'm this terrain, the, the money factor is always that it, it's always in the conversation. And would you want to rely more on the audience making it possible? Or do you still need to have some sort of, whether it's in something like the European union or, a funding source that uh, there's a, more money involved, and I, and how do you navigate that? Whether it's straight from the we listeners, are, we or... are studying this very carefully because mm. there are several revenue uh, streams. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we want Darash to be to remain an open wall. We don't want to have a paywall. Okay. To me, it's yeah. a philosophy. Knowledge has to be accessible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fake news is spread everywhere, but when it comes to real. Uh, news, real stories, you have to pay for them. I'm mm -hmm. not saying that it's wrong, uh, but I'm saying that we in Daraj were trying to defend the right for the Arab audience to access real information free. Yet we are studying having uh, a crowdfunding, a subscription that without having a paywall, paywall. it's just like the Guardian example, where you, you can subscribe, but yeah. you still have. At the right, same time, right. we have other revenue streams that we are considering and some of it is working which is production uh, for because of yes. our our experience in television we work on producing videos or long formats short formats the profit of these videos is for daraj so we are so far we have like 10 15 percent from our budget is coming from uh, production and some trainings and other stuff that we're doing. So that's we the secret weapon. That. That's the secret weapon. You need to be, you need to have, you need to know the inside. You need to know traditional media and apply what you took from that world 
to the digital age because not many Absolutely. people not many people have that talent knowing how to make documentaries for a tv station and then being able to produce your own your own work for 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 hire and you know i'm going to say this i on um, i think it's maybe at times facebook i see Dada's videos and they look good i mean they look really good friend of mine friend of ours nasir yasin has been on several of these and um, I mean, to me, this is a TV studio quality uh, product. With minimal cost. Minimum cost. And then I see the data sort of cost. imprint. Yeah. But is minimum cost a factor of technology that it just simply costs less? Or are you just, are you able to do it? Therefore, you know how to do it. You don't need to train. You don't need to hire. I'm curious why it's minimum. Because it, it looks really it's good. Both. It's both, uh, Rami. Mm, uh, mm. uh, First of all, we don't compromise on the quality and on the content, but mm. we try to be effective. For instance, if we want to film, uh, uh, we, we, we book a day at the studio, we try to bring several uh, people to interview at the same day. I see, I, mean, I see. From yes. someone who works in television, I can see how much money has been thrown yeah. uh, without really uh, benefiting that much. So we are trying to learn and avoid mistakes that we have witnessed in the and past two days. Is, is that part of the reason why it's at the, the, the offices are at Antwerp, that you can afford to have something that you don't need to build your own sort of uh, enterprise. You can rent a space and use it on your terms. Does that factor in? Because it's really symbolic. Future TV across the street, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. It's not there. Dadaj is just Unfortunately, an I don't want to compare the two because we're still, again, we're talking about sure, sure. small uh, independent uh, mm. platform mm -hmm. a television that has been running from 93. Of course, and of yes, course. But this has been the case with so many media outlets in Lebanon. I have mm. visited mm. several TV stations, not only in Lebanon. Till today, if yeah. you look at the new stations that were launched a couple of months ago, they are still using the same mentality. Huge studios, right. huge lighting, yeah. uh, speakers, the same mentality. I would say this is, I mean, we are in a different age. We don't, you don't have to spend that much money to create a, a, a story. If you mm. have a good content, you definitely, you have to be professional in how to present it. But um, I, I would say that we still have the mentality of spending too much on things that you can, you can easily make with minimal cost, but this is not how, uh, this is not the case so far. I would just give you an example. Please, yes. The day after Port Beirut explosion, after the, the crime of uh, Beirut port, most of our team was affected. At least four, we are 12 core members in, in Beirut. Mm, mm. Four to five have either lost the house, injured or something broken. And of course, all of us were affected by the explosion. So the team, needed a day or something to, 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 to start functioning after first of all, understand what happened. The second day, my reaction was to go on the ground and start working. I swear, I used this phone. Right. I filmed two stories about yeah. a woman who survived the explosion and a family who were looking for their son who was missed in the, in the port. They went viral. I filmed them with my phone with my phone. It's just how to do the interview, take the shots, ask the right question, do the right story, edit it. Yeah, it's Zero really interesting. Cost. You know, you remind me, I, 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 this is a very odd comparison, but I'll say it anyway. You reminded me of a conversation I had with Ziad Dwayri. He was the first episode yeah. I did almost two years ago now. And I mean, the only difference really, well, no, no, actually, no, there's no difference. He went to film school. You went to journalism school. You studied journalism. And he was very clear. He said, you don't need to go to film school to learn how to become a filmmaker. Just get a camera and figure it out. And you'll teach yourself how to do it. You have had almost three decades of, three decades of experience. You're using the same phone that I use, and you're making something that will go viral instantly. So there's something, there's a lesson learned there. These are, these are real practical, these are skills that you learn on the ground. And add to that, that you have the craft. You know what it's like to work in a TV studio. So you can see where money does not need to be spent. You can avoid certain things. I think there's something there. And it helps explain really why Dada is sort of standing up, standing out, as opposed to the other sort of many things that come and go. 
So there is a, there is a secret recipe there. And I think it's all in the mix here. And, and it's impressive that somebody within 24 hours, a very tired, very exhausted population. And I mean, your own staff is impacted 24 hours. You're, you're producing content. And I think that's also, you, you need to have that. Because you're trained. I mean, yeah. this is, yeah. yes, there's nothing compared to Beirut explosion, but for someone who covered Lebanon, Iraq, Yemen, Afghanistan, uh, I mean, you have built a kind of, of uh, reception, how to respond to war, to explosions, to right. yeah. huge crisis. Mm. So my response was to work. Either I get uh, depressed and sit in my own room, figuring out where I'm living and what's happening, or I have to respond through work. To me, work is a healing process. This is the way how, to, how I respond to the injustices and crimes that we live and we see and witness on a daily basis in Lebanon and in the region. And I'm going to say something which is, should be emphasized. Uh, there's no clickbait. And I think this is important. There's no luring in. There's no sedacious, I don't know what the word is anymore, sedacious, yeah. I think, uh, titles yeah. to sort of, you know, click on this, Dadaj has produced something sexy or anything like that. This is straight news. The I problem said, with yeah. mainstream media is the sensationalism. If you look at any mainstream media in Lebanon, there is nothing that the ABC is not there. The guidelines is not there. If you yeah. go to work, work with CNN, uh, BBC, any other uh, international media platform, there is a Bible that you have to follow. That's called the guideline. The, yeah. uh, wherever you work, any, any institutions, if you have to work with it, there is a Bible that you should follow. It does not happen here in Lebanon. We're still talking about, uh, I mean, if you look at the news bulletin, so many uh, problem or so many uh, sensationalism and sometimes fake news, sometimes hate speech, full of so many things that media should not be uh, that way. This is not media. So I have a problem with how they present themselves as media outlets. And then, of course, that inflects on, me, on, on, on gender issues, on refugee issues, on minority issues, on freedom of speech issues. Right. In Lebanon, when they arrest an activist, give you an example of Mashua uh, Layla or any sure. issue related to LGBTIQ uh, uh, issue. When Mashua Layla party or uh, uh, the 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 celebrate the party uh, what is it in biblos festival yeah 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 yes. yeah the way media approach the issue is is really uh, alarming it's not only politicians the conservatism that we have among media outlets the the the, the core understanding of what is journalism and what is freedom of speech is still missing you find it in some areas but in other other areas uh, it's not so uh, we haven't uh, we haven't um, matured in the sense of what is freedom and what is journalism but these, these are very these are very important statements and that's in a way you're addressing the core freedom of expression please some taboos have been uh, broken some taboos in discussing these issues um, i mean it's not like in the 90s Today, right. yeah. because of social media, because of the internet, because of the new figures that have found their spaces on Instagram or in, on uh, Facebook or on Twitter, we started seeing this kind of discussion. But at the same time, you have the counter uh, narrative, which is the far right, the radical, the extremist, uh, who is against all this. So we have a chaotic scene today. Mm. To me, it's full of chaos. Yeah. But... You have to be persistent, you have to know what you are defending, and you have to be really vocal about it. It's not the time to back up or uh, and to say it's, it's, uh, we cannot uh, really face what is happening around us. We are in the middle of a huge fight in Lebanon and the region. And whether it, it's about corruption, about gender equality, about minorities, refugees, any, any, any topic, we are in the worst era that we are uh, that we live in and that really requests that we become really open and bold and clear about what type of coverage what type of messaging we want to deliver and you, the, the here comes yeah. why we are doing what we're doing in Darash. you hinted at it before that uh, 
traditional outlets, and especially in the Lebanese context, there's built-in pressure. You cannot say whatever you want. And you will be either removed or pressured to change what you're saying, or there will be a way to sort of contain that messaging. Um, and here online, in a way, but principally you have no sort of, there's no oversight telling you, you have to lean a certain way or not. You're able to express yourself as you see fit. And two days ago, I think, or maybe even yesterday, I think it was yesterday online, you were in a way poking fun at something. And I, I think you did it well, that you're summoned by someone <laughs> and we don't know who, <laughs> you're not even sure exactly when, or, you know, yeah. I think it was a, maybe even just a name, one name, Rafi or I don't know. Yeah. 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 And, and I think, yeah, yeah, but I like the way you said it. You're like, must be such a famous person that I don't know because otherwise we'd all know who this guy is. But but you know, I like one of the comments say it's just like Bond. You don't yeah, have to say just like Yeah, exactly. <laughs> at that level. And but you are somebody who's well known. You're you're that kind of summons, whether you seek a lawyer to represent you, however you however you approach that. Um, is there is there a real threat now at all types of media to sort of lay low on certain subjects? The answer first, yes, the level of intimidation and uh, uh, targeting people like us is higher than before. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the ability to face and fight back is higher. Right. So it, right. it's, yes, I mean, if you look at the numbers of how many people have been stopped, harassed, bullied, or uh, tried in courts or even hit, targeted physically during protests and demonstrations, it's higher than ever before. Yet the ability to fight back, to gain these battles, the public opinion battles uh, locally, regionally is higher than before. I'm talking about Lebanon, despite all the problems we have in Lebanon, the margin of freedom of speech in Lebanon we enjoy in the country, despite all the deterioration, is still higher than the region. We still... Right, right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And this is something we should not lose. That's why we feel the fight is really... Uh, uh, should is fierce. We should go through this fight. That's why we don't compromise when it comes to freedom of speech. Uh, people with with in the in I personally feel it's my own battle to defend this issue because if we lose this, we lose everything. Look at what happened in Lebanon. Let me just finish this. Of piece. course, please, uh, please, please. We have lost our uh, environment. We have lost our money. Although they claim that we have the best banking uh, system in the region, we lost our money. Uh, everything that they said about Lebanon. We have lost and we discovered that it was, it was a lie. The only reality in Lebanon is the freedom of speech, the margin freedom of speech, the relative, it's not, it's not uh, complete, uh, right. of course. Yeah. But this is the real battle. If we lose it, we lose the meaning of Lebanon. That's why to me, the battle for freedom of speech, the battle for media and free media and serious media is the real issue here in Lebanon. And that's why there's no compromise when it comes to this issue. This is the, the problem. Do you need to have support today to push back? Because I, I, what you're saying resonates with me and I don't think this fight is worth fighting without this, this really important principle. And once you lose freedom of expression in this country, even if it's relative, still, it's, it's a very black future, very bleak and very dark future. Do, do you need to be well, do you need to be an established figure to be able to say, you know what, this is just, this is not going to intimidate uh, unfortunately, me. Unfortunately, I'm talking about reality. We yeah. published today a story about a young lady, her name is Jessica, who was summed twice and she, they tried to humiliate her because of post she did about uh, Michelle Aoun, uh, on on her social media pages. Right. But she is not uh, a known figure. She did not receive that much support from media figures, from media outlets. So right. I'm, I'm sure 
very few heard about her or knew mm -hmm. about her. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. was the topic that we covered, that those who don't, the people we don't know, nobody really uh, give them support. Last right. month, we did a story about Saeed. He was arrested for 40 days, for zero, in prison because of a post on social media. Yeah. He's not a public figure. Nobody heard of him. So he remained in prison. So yes, if you are a known figure, definitely you will get the support and get, and those who, um, uh, uh, those who are after you will think twice before addressing you. Right. The real battle right. is for those people who have no support, who have no presence on, on the public sphere, these people need much more support more than those who are well-known. I know I'm, I'm not afraid. Uh, I'm not saying that I won't be targeted. This is the second yeah. uh, issue I have with courts. But I know that it's not going to be an easy battle with me. First of all, I'm not a person who can be silenced easily. Second, <laughs> second yes, I know I will get some support. Yeah. It's those people I'm worried about. Jessica, who has been targeted and received zero support or at least minimal support, and also Saeed and many others. Many people have been arrested and nobody heard of them. Is that why you're publishing these stories? To make sure that yes. these voices are not intimidated, that they have support? These stories not to be left alone. Yeah. It's very difficult when you feel that you are left alone and nobody asks about you and nobody cares about you. And look at it from this perspective. So yes, they, these people should not be alone, and it's a story. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you're you're in the media world. You've been in it for a long time. I remember the early two thousands where people were very careful what they said in public, and there was pressure. And it it I know it's not at the same level today, but it does feel a bit familiar that there's this second guessing who you're talking to. And maybe it's interesting today. It's less what you're, it's funny. It's less who you're talking to. It's more who you're <laughs> interacting with online. Yeah. But, but it's the same kind of. Yeah. There's something I'm sure you don't remember. You were young in the early nineties. Political news was banned for a few months in Lebanon in the early nineties. When the Syrians used to control Lebanon, we found ourselves by law, banned from publishing news bulletins. At that time, we spent months covering uh, environment, health, social issues. And it was ironic. It was bizarre. Yeah. At that time, I decided then that, well, it's going to be impossible to really cover proper news and proper political stories in Lebanon. I started shifting towards right. other issues where I can work properly. So right. I know very well what is it like. And then there was no social media. And yeah. this cannot happen today. If anything like this that took place in the early 90s, it's impossible for, for this to happen today. Yeah, that, that level is, I mean, that, that's such an overreach. And I mean, that's sort of, that's outright dictatorship sort of, you know. But, but just in terms of these two examples that you mentioned, I would assume that this is happening all over the place. And yet those people are too afraid to share it and they sort of just go home and they, and they, and they, they stop. Yeah. Is that, are we, are we sort of facing a, a difficult, difficult phase in whether it's alternative media outlets or whether it's citizen journalists or just people willing to, willing to say what they feel online? Are we entering this sort of, testing phase that we have to in a way this is a battle that needs to be won again or is it a fait accompli that the internet has solved this issue that whether or not jessica or anyone saeed whether or not they're summoned whether or not they're even thrown in jail for 40 days the fact is once they share it it's out there and those words are permanent you can't really just you can't pull back everyone's sort of sharing that's impossible and I, I'm not trying to sound too romantic with the internet here, but just that, is there any support that the average person can count on beyond Dada's reposting the story or, or sharing it publicly that they have in a way that the foundation is there? I mean, I may not be asking it correctly, but just that has the internet solved that issue that it's, you can't permanently silence 
the population, period. It's not period. Yes, it gave it gave a voice and it, it's helping people who don't have a platform to, to yeah. reflect themselves. But at the same time, it gave access to those who, imp- who are empowered. Right. Let's, yeah. let's look at what's happening around us, yeah. whether in, in, the re- in the Gulf and Egypt and everywhere. You can see governments hacking people. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Their, uh, uh, their even phones, uh, arresting them forcing them to access their social media pages, their mobile phones. These people are intimidated. Many of them have been silenced, have been scared. So uh, we don't want Lebanon to reach that level. This is why to, to me and to many who shares my views, believe that this is the core fight. We don't want to be another Egypt, another Syria, another Iran, another uh, of these countries where um, the government can really intimidate and right. put yeah. people in jail. Yeah. So we are in the middle of this battle. It's right. very vital. And um, everybody, every, every party has a, a tool. The governments are really well equipped and technology, as much as helping individuals, but also it's helping those who are in power. They are buying expensive technology to hack, to monitor, to you follow know. dissidents or uh, those who are in oppositions. So it's um, it's unequivalent battle, but it's inevitable uh, to go through. What we did after the civil war is that we let the warlords ra- rule the country. No accountability whatsoever. The, 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 the victims of, we have 15, thousand missing Lebanese during the war and the victims of the war. Nobody pursued justice for them, unfortunately. After the war, we gave general general clemency, amnesty for the uh, criminals, and the country started then doing the same policy. Whenever there's a crime, an explosion, assassination, we don't reach an end. We don't reach an end. It just goes. Today, the same crime is being repeated for the port explosion. Yep. This is this is a this is a huge battle. We want the criminals to be accountable. Those who killed Muhammad Shatah, who killed Samir Asir, who killed all Lebanese during the past 30 years, and those who did the explosion in Port Beirut should be held accountable. We have a tradition in the country that has been laid by the warlords and those who run the country after 91, the regional powers, Iran, Syria, Gulf, whomever. They all agreed that let's turn the page without really understanding what happened and who did what. If you look at the explosion that took place in Port Beirut, you will find major powers who were responsible uh, for the civil war also were responsible for the port. If you look at the the assassinations, the series of assassinations that you suffered the most by losing your father to it, were also done by those who either related to the civil war or to the power that covered the civil war and tried to evade uh, accountability. We have a huge problem with not holding those criminals into account. And unless we solve this, unless we solve it, Unfortunately, we might expect and see to see more victims. Is that the media's ultimate burden? To be that pillar that forces bad actors to face some form of justice? And I, and I know that word is, maybe it's in the loosest definition, that cr- criminals are held to account and the pressure comes from media. Or, or is it really beyond that, that the population has to really will it because it's again subjective way it's hard for me to see those beautiful chants on the street a year ago a year and a half i mean october until in a way early 2020 and then where we are today it's almost like it's it was screamed from everyone's i mean it was shouted left and right and doesn't look like there's going to be real accountability for for many crimes in particular the most recent one so i'm 
I'm trying to see that light at the end of the tunnel and whether media has a role to play in, in that particular issue. Media, among other players, has a role to play, definitely. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, and despite acknowledging that we are in such a difficult position, I'm not, I'm not uh, pessimistic to the extent that I don't see the light. I see mm. it very far, but I do see it. Mm. I do. I mean, it's inevitable. We have to go through this fight. Yeah. Through the media, through civil society, through lawyers, through protesters. It's not only chanting in the streets, although it's very important, but now we can see groups are trying to uh, allocate themselves, are trying to go through different uh, layers of battles. Let's not underestimate what the students, the independent students sure. of that yeah. university. This is a major sign that we should put into account. So I think the society is trying to reinvent itself, but that will take some time, that will take several uh, uh, layers. It's not going to happen in one day. Yeah. Uh, we are in such a difficult time economically, health-wise. So I wouldn't say that uh, it's easy, not at all, but the fight is still ahead of us and it's a long way to go. Uh, I do see some signs of hopes. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's there, but I mean, what to do if not to go through this fight? Yeah. Me personally, it's either I do it or I die. It's I keep doing what I'm doing as a journalist, maybe for a student as a student. Otherwise, what's the meaning of this life if not going through these uh, battles? Those are the words I was looking for when I first figured out that I was going to speak to you. And I knew that in some way, shape or form that was going to come up. And I'm glad you said that. I think that's the best way to wrap up this episode. And I, I believe in this fight and I believe in people like you. And I'll say this, I'm, I'm a fan of Daraj and I'm a fan of your own, uh, your own work. And I, I'm really honored to consider you a friend now in the flesh. Hopefully post lockdown, we can have a coffee again and maybe more. I want to say one thing, though. This is the first episode I've done since coming back to Beirut, in Beirut. And I now know that this light is terrible. So anyone watching, this will disappear next time. It's not sweat. It's just a giant lamp above me. And uh, I, I, <laughs> I tried making some makeshift background here. I have Charles Mingus from Baalbek, 1974. But I think that something better has to come up eventually. This is not a very sexy background. But that said... Uh, I really appreciate your time, Diana. And I'll link up Daraj's website and, and all the information surrounding Daraj. So I'll see you post. Thank you so much, Ronnie. Uh, it has been a while since I talked that much and uh, touched yes. on so Thank many subjects. Thank no, you so no. much. You, you're exactly, it needs to be emphasized where we spoke twice as long as we agreed and you were hesitating at the beginning. You know, I may not say that much. You said it all. <laughs> so I'm glad. I'm glad you, you shared your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>